The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. As we go back to the Gospel of Mark tonight, chapter 10, we're going to read verses 32 through 34. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. I want to preach to you tonight about the way going up to Calvary. Notice it says here they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. But in actual point of fact, they were actually in the way going up to Calvary. This was the prelude to Calvary. This was the last uh, journey, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ as He is going back to Jerusalem, going up on the way to Calvary. This isn't the first time that He's mentioned the cross to His disciples. But it seems like this time something's a little different. We've been seeing Him up to this point in in this Gospel of Mark as the sweet servant who is going about doing good, who is doing all things well. We're about to begin seeing Him as the suffering Savior. He is not just trudging along this road. You're going to see here as we look at it today that that He was going before them. He was, he was leading the way to Calvary. Now, I've said that in the past, He's made references to the cross. If you'll look back with me over to the 8th chapter of Mark, you remember in verse 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This appears to be the first time that He mentioned the cross to His disciples. Now, now think about the disciples. Put yourself in their place for a few minutes. They have finally met whom they believe to be the Messiah. They have finally... This whole Gospel starts off as entitled the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we read about how that He went about and called these men from their walks of life, from their, uh, from their ships where they were fishing, from the tables where they were collecting taxes, from the places in their, uh, in their daily lives that they were, just, they were just trudging along. They were just plodding along doing the day-to-day events, meeting the day-to-day uh, crises, uh, doing the day-to-day things that every day required for them. And out of the blue, out of, you know, they'd been hearing about this Messiah. They'd been taught about this Messiah. They'd been looking for this Messiah. But did they really expect this Messiah would come in their time? I kind of doubt it. 
I kind of think they were just like we are sometimes when we're taught that the Lord is coming back. We're taught that one day the trumpet will sound. We're taught that that one of these days the dead in Christ will rise and we will go up to meet them together in the air. And we sometimes get to trudging along in our day-to-day lives and we forget that that is not just some pie in the sky by and by. It's a very real and present promise for us. The Apostle Paul was looking for him every day to come back 2,000 years ago. If the Apostle Paul thought it was urgent and imminent, how much more urgent and imminent should we think it to be? But these disciples were like that, I believe. I kind of identify with them, brother buddy. I, I get caught up in the daily things of life. But then the, then, then the Messiah himself comes on the scene. And, and you remember the story of how he called Peter and James and John and Andrew and, and Bartholomew and other gospels. And all these disciples were called from their walks of life. And now they're excited because they're thinking that, according to the teachings they had, they're thinking that he's about to throw off the yoke of Rome and they're about to establish a kingdom here uh, that is free of, the, of the, the world's influences and free of, of these empires that have arisen. Oh, they've been so put upon through the years. They're looking forward to political deliverance. But then Jesus starts talking about these crazy things. And this is how I know they thought it was crazy. They thought he was losing his mind. In fact, his own family, I believe it's in the fourth chapter of Mark, but don't hold me to that. His own family came to him and his friends and said, he's beside himself. (laughs) He's lost his mind. And now he's talking about not leading a band of, of warriors and recruiting the great war leaders to his side. He's saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and he's going to be rejected and he's going to be mocked and he's going to be killed and the reason i know they thought he was crazy is the very next verse says he spake that saying openly and peter took him and began to rebuke him in one place he says not so lord no quit talking this mess quit talking this junk lord we that's not for you you're you're going to be a successful messiah you're going to be a triumphant king Oh, Peter, he just couldn't see with the eyes of spirit. You know, and and the reason I know that the Lord uh, was talking about something totally opposite is because he looked at Peter and said, Peter, Satan, get you behind me. I'm so thankful. Well, to, to my knowledge, he's never called me Satan. Now, I've acted like Peter too many times, so he probably had a right to. Get thee behind me, Satan. But they didn't understand what he was talking about. And he began, he kept on teaching these things to them. Not, you know, it's, it's, it's almost as if he was dropping little hints here and there. He wasn't pouring the whole teaching upon them at one time, but he was constantly and consistently uh, pointing them toward the pathway the, the way going up to Calvary. He was, he was trying to tell them, he was trying to get them to understand in a gentle, in a leading, a softly, gently leading way, hey guys, I am, I am about to be on the way going up to Calvary, the road to Calvary. As a matter of fact, Jesus was on the road to Calvary 
from the time he took his first steps as a little toddler. And then in the ninth chapter here of Mark, in the ninth verse, we read that uh, after the Mount of Transfiguration, they came down from the mountain and he charged them, he said, you don't, he charged them to tell no man what they'd seen, listen, until the Son of Man were risen from the dead. Now, I can just see their faces again. This, this time it's, it's Peter and James and John that went up with him. And, he, and they saw all these glorious things. They saw him in his glory. I'm sure Peter, you know, Peter got excited. He said, let's make three tabernacles because here's, here's you, Lord, in your glory. And then there's Elijah and Moses in their glorified states. And I'm sure just like Peter, if we saw a glorified angel or, a, or, or one of the old saints in their glorified states, we'd feel like we want to worship them too. That's, that's part of the problem we have. We're so easily awed by the things that are in heaven, that uh, if, if we don't watch it, you know, even John tried to fall down at the feet of an angel and worship the angel. <laughs> Can you imagine how much more glorious it will be worshiping the Lord to see the Lord high and lifted up in His glory? <laughs> but be that as it may, they're coming down the mountain and I'm sure Peter got the hope up in his heart saying, man, if he appears like this and we all end up looking like Elijah and Moses in that kind of a state, We'll kick those Romans out of here in a heartbeat. But as they came down, he said, I don't want you telling anybody about this. This is what he ought to be telling, right? He ought to be going back and saying, hey guys, y'all hadn't seen anything yet. This man, go out and tell the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, let me take a picture of this and let me go down and show you a selfie <laughs> with, with the Lord glorified. Man, that would prove beyond a doubt who he is. But you see, that wasn't the purpose of Jesus coming into this world. He said, you don't tell people what you've seen until the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And I can just see him say, what? Wait a minute. Did he just say risen from the dead? I can see him talking among themselves. In fact, that's what they did. It says they kept that saying with themselves, questioning with one another what the rising from the dead should mean. I can see it. I mean, I, you, you can see it. Think about this. Didn't, this isn't some story. This is some fable. This really happened. Put yourself there. You're coming down the mountain after seeing this and you're excited and you're just, man, clapping and excited. And he said, now listen, I know this was great, but don't tell anybody till I rise from the dead. Oh yeah, Lord, what? What, what did he say? Did he say something about dying? Rise from the dead. What is he talking about? You know? <clears throat> That's the second time he's kind of told them a little bit about it. And then a little bit further on in this same chapter, the 30th verse, it said they departed thence and passed through Galilee and he would not have that any man should know it for he taught his disciples and said unto them, the son of man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But once again, they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. Have you ever been there where somebody said something that you didn't quite understand? And you just acted like you understood it. You ever done that? You know, somebody says something. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. What did he say? I don't know. I didn't hear him either. I, don't, I mean, what? You know, and, you, and then they start talking about it again. And then you're like, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. You know what I told you the other day? about? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to ask you now because I'm too embarrassed. See, I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to say anything about it. And that's kind of where they were. 
Don't you just get these disciples? Don't you just get them? I get them. I get them. They're just like me. I'm just like them. <clears throat> and up to this point, he's walking along with them. He's teaching them. But I want you to notice something. And I think it's important. There's a little something different here in the 10th chapter. It almost brings me to tears thinking about it. It says, they were in the way, back in the 10th chapter in the 32nd verse, they were in the way going up to Jerusalem and Jesus went before them. <clears throat> now this time, you know, in the past, the way we read it, he's, he's hanging out with them. He's walking together with them. They're around him. He's in the middle of them. It's almost like they're just in a kind of a conversation. But this time, this time he's, he went before them. He's leading them. He's out ahead of them. And, and you notice everyone else, they were amazed. And some of them were afraid. I don't believe this was just the 12 apostles that were with him. I believe there was a whole entourage of disciples. The 12 were certainly there because he takes them aside. But I believe there were a bunch of folks there. And they were, this time, they could sense that there was something different. What is it that was different this time? Well, remember the Gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel. And it doesn't give us every little piece of information about what Jesus was doing. None of the gospels actually do that. But John wrote this. He said, he said if, if all the things he did and said were to be contained in the books, he said, I suppose the whole world couldn't contain the books that should be written. So there's a lot more that Jesus did that we don't know about, but, but the Gospel of Mark is kind of, kind of a short version. It's, it's absolutely complete. I'm not criticizing it in any way. It's a beautiful little book. It's a beautiful little direct and to the point account of Jesus' ministry here. But there's some, there's some things that are left out, and I believe John fills in some of the gaps. And, you don't have to turn there, but if you look sometime at the 8th through about the 12th chapter of John, you're going to find some of these gaps are filled in. And so during the time that he, remember, this is, this is Jesus going up to Jerusalem. We're in the 10th chapter and we're going to see that he, he goes up and we're leading us, we're leading uh, up to the, the very crucifixion itself. Over in the 8th chapter of the book of John, you can turn sometime and read it, but you don't have to tonight. It says that that's the, the place where he, he makes the statement, before Abraham was, I am. And you know what the Jews did at that point when he was teaching that openly there in Jerusalem? They took up stones to stone him. They hated what he said so much and they hated him so much that they wanted to kill him. This was spurred on by the chief priests and the scribes. The, the religious leaders of Jerusalem had gotten in their mind by this time that we need to kill this man. Now in chapter 9, there's an interlude about him healing a blind man, but that really didn't do anything but just exacerbate the tensions because that blind man went back to, uh, uh, to his home and his family and people started talking about him. And, and it was like it was a notorious thing that had occurred and it was just like rubbing salt in the wounds of the, of the Pharisees. They didn't like Jesus anyway. He was a threat to their authority. Now he's, he's doing things that are getting all the people behind him. He, that's, that's where, if you remember the blind, they go to the blind man and say, this man was a sinner. <laughs> 
This man was a sinner. What are you talking about? He said, whether he be a sinner or no, I don't know. All I know is, is once I was blind and now I see. I love that account. I'd love to preach on that tonight. But then you come over to the 10th chapter, the 10th chapter of John. And and, and this is the place where he says, I and my father are one. And what did they do? They took up stones to stone him again. And he escaped from them because his time was not yet come. The 11th chapter of John is where he raises Lazarus from the dead. Probably the greatest miracle he's done in throughout his whole uh, ministry. It's the most notorious for sure because it got the Pharisees' attention. And down towards the end of that chapter, they began to, they began to take note of him and they began to make plans of how they could, how they could deliver him up and have him crucified. And over in the 12th chapter... He goes to eat dinner, a little luncheon or a dinner with Lazarus. And, and it, they got so mad at Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. Lazarus was the proof of his divinity, the proof of his power. And they, they not only decided, we're not just going to kill Jesus, we're going to kill Lazarus too. You see, that's the context in which this statement here in Mark chapter 10 is made, where it says that, They were in the way going up to Jerusalem. And this could very well explain why the disciples were amazed. What's he doing going back to Jerusalem? They want to kill him there. This could very well explain why some of the other disciples were afraid. If we go up with him, he's liable to kill us too. They're already wanting to kill Lazarus. They were amazed and they were afraid. But notice what Jesus did. It says Jesus went before them. There was a purpose. There was an urgency, if you will, to Jesus' trek back to Jerusalem. Jesus was in the way going up to Jerusalem and no longer was He just meandering along, if you will, with His disciples and taking His time. Now, He was leading the way. What could explain this? What could explain this purpose, this purposeful march back to Jerusalem? Back over in Isaiah chapter 50, in a very clear messianic psalm, in the seventh verse, I want you to listen to what's written of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, For the Lord God will help me, referring to Jesus. Therefore shall I not be confounded. I'll tell you, beloved, if I were going to a city where they were wanting me to die, if I were going to a city that I had, in the eyes of men at least, barely escaped with my life already, I would be confounded. I would be upset. I would be stressed. My decision making wouldn't be very good because I don't make very good decisions when I'm under stress. But notice here what is said of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the Lord God will help me. You know why he knew that the Lord God would help him? Because he was the Lord God. (laughs) He was in perfect harmony with his Father. He wasn't down here wandering around trying to figure out what to do next. He had a purpose. And it says that the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed. You know, a flint is a very hard rock, isn't it? 
There was a time when God told Ezekiel, I'm going to make your forehead like a flint. That way you can withstand all the attacks, all the, all the challenges that are going to be out there. Well, in this case, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is said of Him that He set His face like a flint on the way going up to Jerusalem, which was the way going up to Calvary. He set his face like a flint. Still though, why would he do such a thing? Why? I believe we find the answer written in words of love that are contained in Ephesians, for example. Many places, but take Ephesians chapter 2, for example. And let's read what it says there. Oh, I, I love these, this passage. It starts out in the second chapter talking about the condition that we're in. You hath he quickened, but let's forget about the quickening for a minute and let's remember the condition who were dead. Who were dead in trespasses and in sins. You were dead, beloved. I was dead. The whole human race was dead and condemned in sin. When Adam partook of the fruit, the Pronouncement of judgment had already occurred in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Paul tells us in Romans, as in Adam, all died. Beloved, we were dead in trespasses and in sins. This morning I preached to you about that rich young ruler that came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him when he said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Asking the wrong question once again, as many people do. Jesus said, one thing thou lackest. You're missing one thing, young man. You're missing the fact that only God is good. Man is not. There's no good thing you can do. All of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. When we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins, there is no goodness within us. There is no good thing that we can do. We were dead in trespasses and in sins. And in time past, we walked according to the course of this world. Beloved, our depravity is not just a dormant thing down in deep inside our spirit. Our depravity overflows and it manifests itself in so many ways. Oh, it still does. <laughs> Even as a born-again child of God, my depravity comes out too often and overpowers that spiritual nature within me. Oh, but when I was dead in trespasses and in sins, it sure enough controlled and consumed my life. I walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And this, just in case you think you missed that, you're included in the next phrase, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. In the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Why would He go on the way going up to Calvary for someone like that? How, why would He set His face like a flint Toward Calvary, why would he set his face like a flint on the road to Calvary going up to Jerusalem? I believe the next verse tells us all we need to know about that. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. 
By grace, ye are saved. You know why he set his face like a flint? You know why he set himself purposefully and almost eagerly, if you will, to go up on the way going up to Jerusalem, which would ultimately lead to Calvary? For his great love wherewith he loved you. For his great love wherewith he loved me. I've said this recently and I'll say it again. I heard a preacher, Brother Donald Parker, say one time many years ago a statement I love to this day. I believe he'd have gone to Calvary and suffered this horrible death uh, if I'd have been the only one in the covenant of grace. I'm thankful I'm not the only one. I'm thankful I, it's a number no man can number. But, but you want to talk about the personal nature of salvation, beloved, he'd have died for you if you'd have been the only one. He set his face like a flint to go up there to Calvary. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, tells us a sweet uh, description of what he was thinking. It says in verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus This one who set his face like a flint to go up on the way going to Jerusalem and ultimately to Calvary, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice what he was doing. He wasn't enjoying the cross. He He was enduring the cross. He wasn't happy about the shame he despised the shame and i believe one of the most shameful parts of it was his separation from his father when my dad when my father was not happy with me when he got on to me about something i was ashamed about that beloved the lord jesus christ experienced the shame of the cross not for anything he had done And believe me, the Lord was satisfied with His sacrifice, but in the midst of becoming sin for us, the Lord God Almighty turned His back on His Son and there was a separation that occurred because that which is holy cannot be tainted with that which is sinful. And beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ became sin for us. You know what what He did though? He had some joy set before Him. He had some joy set before him. What was that joy? Beloved, he could... There's an old song I love. Old Southern Gospel song. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. You know, there's a place in the Old Testament where it says that Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. I believe Jacob is not just talking about the man Jacob, but talking about Jacob as a representative of all of the elect children of God. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. We sing that song that says, He'll not live in glory and leave me behind. Beloved, there's some joy for Jesus Christ in the, in the ultimate deliverance of His people into the presence of God. One day, when He comes back to take us home, when the resurrection occurs, He'll go into the presence of His Father and He'll stand there and say, Behold, I and the children Thou hast given me, I have been successful, Lord. I have been successful, my Father, in redeeming them. I say, Set my face like a flint toward Calvary. For the great love wherewith I shared this love with them that you shared with them before the foundation of the world. 
I want you to notice it's amazing what he says is going to happen. And it's so amazing that some few, you know, later historians say, well, this must have been added later because it's too accurate for him to have written it at this time. Well, I, I say to you, the, the writer of history itself can easily write down the history <laughs> before it happens, can he? He said, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him and scourge him and spit upon him and kill him. And he shall rise, and the third day he shall rise again. Oh, he's fulfilling. You know, one of the reasons he set his face like a flint is that the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures might be fulfilled in him. You know, I love what it says over in Acts, the fourth chapter, about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't, don't read these verses as some kind of absolute or verses. These are primitive Baptist verses, okay? <laughs> these are primitive Baptist verses. In chapter 4 of, of, of Acts, as Peter is, is speaking there and the, the disciples are speaking he's the, about, the, about the crucifixion, it says in verse 26, the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. We're going to see as we go through this Gospel of Matthew that Pilate, who was the very representative of all the authority of the empire of Rome. And Herod, who was representative of, of, of the kingdom there in the northern part of Israel. And, and, the, and the chief priests and the scribes who were representative of the rulers of the nation of Israel that was still nevertheless under captivity to Rome. They were standing up together. They, they became friends. In fact, we're told in one place that Pilate and Herod had been at odds with each other. But when they brought Jesus in there, they both teamed up against him and they became friends from that very day forward. I want to say to you, beloved, nothing will bring enemies together like you being their enemy. <laughs> you being their enemy. When they want to persecute you, there are those out there in the world that hate each other, that don't get along, but if they can, they can find common cause against God's people and the truth of God's Word. He says, the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, and the people of Israel, that's the Jews, were gathered together. All these people, these illustrious potentates here had gathered together against the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, that sounds like a pretty formidable bunch, doesn't it? Jesus Christ has set His face like a flint to go up to Jerusalem, to go up to Calvary, and, and looks like He's got some very formidable enemies here. He just told a rich man that those that are rich, it's hard for them to get into the kingdom. I can see the disciples, as we said this morning, say, Lord, we need their funding. If we're going to go to war with Rome, we've got to have a source of funding. Don't alienate the rich folks. Don't alienate the scribes and the Pharisees. We need their support. But Jesus is going up with His face set like a flint toward Jerusalem. And all these people are gathered against Him. 
This is going to be bad for him, isn't it? This is going to be a, a formidable task for him to overcome. But notice what it is that they're going to do or have already done in this case. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. <laughs> all of these great kings, all of these great potentates, all of these people, both Jew and non-Jew, that all gathered in common cause against Jesus Christ, they came there and all they did was exactly what the Lord had prophesied in the past that they would do. I'm not talking about some kind of absolutism. I'm talking about the Lord uh, fulfilling prophecy. That's what I'm talking about here. See, he was to be delivered. That word delivered there, it says the son of man shall be delivered unto the chief priests. That word has to do with giving somebody up treacherously or betraying them. In Psalm 41 and verse 9, we read, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. If you remember when he said, one of you will betray me, what was he doing? He was dipping bread into the sop there. That's how accurate the Old Testament Scriptures are, the prophecies. And it says they'll condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. You know, they were wanting to stone him. They were taking up stones to stone him. The Israelites were going to do that, but that's not what the Lord said would happen. The Lord said, You're going to, I'm, he's going to be delivered up to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and he'll be mocked and scourged and spit upon and killed. Over in Psalm, the 22nd chapter. Let's just read a little bit about what David prophesied would happen. In verse 12 of Psalm 22, and this is a, Messianic psalm, the only place we find a first-hand, a first-person account of the crucifixion. Everywhere else we read a third-person account, people looking at him and telling what they saw. But in this 22nd psalm, it's, it's as if Jesus is speaking. And in fact, he is speaking through the mouth of David about what he actually experienced. It's not what he saw. This is what I experienced on the cross. Verse 12, many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. Most scholars believe that that's talking about those Roman centurions. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And now it's brought me into the dust of death. What a terrible death he's experiencing. Now listen to verse 16. For dogs have compassed me. You know what Jews called Gentiles? They called them dogs. <laughs> Jews called Gentiles dogs in that day. Dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now I don't have time to go into all that, but let me just say this much. Crucifixion would have been the last thing on any Jew's mind in the time of David. The way they were to uh, uh, carry out uh, capital punishment was through stoning them. Crucifixion didn't become a, a, a common method of, of capital punishment until the time of the Romans. And this was hundreds of years before that. And yet in this prophecy of the scripture, we read that they will pierce my hands. In my feet. 
I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Sounds a lot like mocking and scourging and spitting, just treating him like he was nobody. Isaiah chapter 50 again, in verse 6, right before verse 7 there, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. You see, when Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Calvary, he was fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies. And then it says that the third day he shall rise again. I guess that was strange and new for the the children of Israel, right? Well, according according to Psalm chapter 55 and verse 3, We read that that he was given the sure mercies of David. He talks about his son, about how he's going to give him the sure mercies of David. And in Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10, he says, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to seek corruption. What's that got to do with Jesus? Well, Paul in the 13th chapter of Acts says it has everything to do with the resurrection. That's the resurrection, beloved. He's going to rise again. Everything he did, He did, according to the Scriptures. Isn't that what He told them on the road to Emmaus? He said, ought not Christ to have suffered these things according to the Scriptures? You see, He set His head, His face like a flint toward Calvary. And what an amazing story this is. But even more amazing is that it is a fact, beloved. This isn't just a tale. This isn't just a fable. This is a fact. This is a, this is a true account of what the Lord Jesus did for us. He died for us. Why did He die for us? Because He loves us. There's a song that I wish we had the words to. Maybe sometime I'll find, a, find it online and print it out and bring it. A song called, He Loves Me. An old southern gospel song. Listen to this as we bring this message to a close. Why did He go to Calvary? Why was His life's blood shed for me? Why did He suffer like no man has ever done? There's just one reason. I am the one. He loves me. He loves me. Jesus loves me. He loves me. He loves me. Jesus loves me. When I'm sad, He loves me. Even when I'm bad, He still loves me. And when it seems no one cares for me, I talk to Jesus. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. Jesus loves me. He loves me. He loves me. Jesus loves me. Beloved, as we read about Jesus taking His first steps openly, if you will, on the way going up to Calvary, may we never forget that this story we're reading about, this story of salvation, is at its heart and at its most basic uh, 
characteristic, a love story. Behold, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, he told Jeremiah. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Jesus set his face like a flint toward Calvary because he loved you and he loved me. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame because he loved you and he loved me. Even when we were dead in sins, he quickened us alive for the great love wherewith he loved us. By grace are we saved. May the Lord help us to keep this view of Jesus with his face set like a flint, walking the final road, the final steps up the hill of Calvary. He did it because he loves us. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.